I'll never forget this one guy wanted to come meet with me. He said he had something to show me. And I was thinking, oh my God, you know, is this guy going to come in with a gun? Because I'm paranoid sort. And he comes and he, he just brings me a stack of documents. It was like a treasure trove. And what this guy told me is he was fired. And if they were going to take him down, he was going to take them down. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with a true legend in the investing community. For over four decades, Herb Greenberg has been one of the top investigative business journalists. A senior stock commentator at CNBC, Herb spent 10 years as the daily columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, as well as the Chicago Tribune. Everyone knows him as a brilliant writer, a tenacious researcher, and a sort of savant when it comes to sniffing out fraud and scrutinizing overhyped companies. He has written some incredible short reports that have helped take down deceitful executives. Today, Herb writes incredible work for Empire Financial Research and his newsletter, Herb Greenberg's Investment Opportunities. So let's get to our podcast with Herb Greenberg. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. Herb, thank you so much for joining us. I've been so excited about this conversation. You're obviously a legend in the industry and your commentary on the markets, especially on Twitter, CNBC and Empire Financial Research is some of my favorite out there. And, you know, your activism and being able to sniff out kind of, you know, wrongdoings in the markets is always incredible. So I'd love to start out with, you know, getting to know kind of how you started out in the industry and what the early days in your career were like. Were you always interested in finance? It was more, was it more journalism? What was it like early on for you when you first started getting into your career? Well, I started out in, 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 as a journalist, and, and, and I did not start out saying, I want to be a financial journalist. We're talking 1974. And 1974 was right after Watergate. Uh, most journalists wanted to be you know, going after political fraud and things like that. And I was working for a small newspaper uh, right out of college uh, in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, it was one of these papers that had a, that had a weekend a weekend business section. And nobody in that very small newsroom wanted to do the weekend business section. So um, they rotated it. And when it was my turn, the first time I went out and did a story, and I remember the story very clearly, it was talking about how you, you know, what, what the profit sharing was like and how you could end up becoming, a, you know, rising in the ranks at the public supermarket chain. And um, I did it. And I kind of liked it. And I started just raising my hand and saying, hey, I'll, I'll do the business section because I looked around. Nobody else wanted to do it. And I kind of had a natural attraction to it. And Boca Raton in those days was a place where there was a convention, Boca Raton Hotel and Club, where there were a lot of, you know, a lot of conventions, a lot of people coming there for conventions to give speeches so you could interview people, a lot of people living there. I, you know, Lee Iacocca, former head of Ford, had a, had a home there. I went and interviewed him. I just started doing these we call them today thumbsucker interviews. None of them were mm -hmm. hard hitting at all, just the opposite. But I started doing it and liked it. And then that lasted about a year and a half. And I moved out. I was bored and, and, and had an interest in circuses, carnivals, and that whole industry. So I went to work for a trade publication in Nashville called Amusement Business, no longer like the Boca Raton News, no longer exists. Um, and that was interesting because you hear amusement business. What's that? Well, I covered circuses, fairs, carnivals, which is sort of like getting me ready for Wall Street and um, and auditoriums and arenas. And this whole that whole magazine was owned by Billboard magazine. We shared the offices with Billboard magazine. And that was the predecessor to Billboard magazine because Billboard magazine started as the outdoor amusement industry in vaudeville and times like that. So um, it, this was just, you know, becoming less and less important, but it was still an interesting industry. And I had a, a good time doing it. And interestingly enough, Jimmy Buffett had the same job. A few years earlier, and uh, he got in and got out uh, pretty quickly. didn't Didn't like it at all, but used it, I think, as a springboard to get him into the uh, into the music industry. And then I got back into daily journalism. That's where things really started cracking. I, I got back into, uh, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but I knew I was tied to the Night River newspaper chain, which is mm -hmm. um, owned the Miami Herald, owned the Boca Raton News. Actually, put me through college um, on a scholarship from the Miami Herald, and I. And I was looking for a job, and I got I got a job as a business reporter at the St. Paul Pioneer Press. St. Paul in those days was a fantastic place to be a young business journalist because it was like – I always referred to it in those days as being a mini Chicago. You had just so many different companies, so many different industries. And as a young reporter, I was there covering – you know, the airline industry, you had two airlines based there. The railroad industry, you had Burlington Northern and the school line based there. 
covered the retailers uh, with Dayton Hudson, which became Target. You know, this company, that company, Toro, Finger, whatever it was, I was covering those companies and I was writing about them. Just, you know, again, not overly ambitious the way I do today, but I learned how to start to bring a little bit of an edge to things. And then I was recruited away to a publication in Chicago called Crane Chicago Business. And that was the turning point of my career. It was the boot camp of my career, turning point of my career. I was there around three years. And that's a place where in Chicago, we covered everything and they were an aggressive publication. And, uh, you know, I just moved from there. And I was, by then I was like well hooked into business journalism and financial journalism. And, you know, moved on to the Chicago Tribune where I kind of covered oh, wow. food industry. You, you covered every single industry. So it just mm-hmm. moved on and on, covered Wall Street, went to New York, was there a financial correspondent. Took a break to go to an arbitrage firm just before the stock market crashed. <laughs> Went to San Francisco, had my column for 10 years. That was a real important part of my career because I really was able yeah. to, that's where I really was able to break stories. I was doing more aggressive work there. Yeah. What do you think inspired you to start doing that more aggressive work there in Chicago? Was, the, was, was there something that made you want to start doing a little bit more of an investigative type journalism? Well, Chicago, the, the level of investigations, at the, it was the character of Crane Chicago business in those days. Crane's had made its name early on by getting Sears' 10-year plan and publishing it. And it just put them on the map. And that's the kind of place, they were, the publication they were. They were into a type of journalism that they were mimicking Business Week in those days. It was called forward spin journalism. You didn't just do the business journalism and write a who, what, when, where, and why type story. But you wanted to pull the reader through. You wanted to move the story forward. We were a weekly, so you had to have a different approach. And so that forward spin sort of started to stay with me. And you always had to have a bottom line. And that was really hard for me in some of those days. You'd come out, you'd do a big piece on a company like Motorola. We did a big takeout on that, I remember. And the editor turned to me and he said, but what does it mean? What's going to happen to this company? They wanted to have that bottom line. And that's what distinguished us from the newspapers. So I sort of started just becoming more aggressive by nature of survival at Cranes. And then after a while, I went to the, the Tribune, where I took that to a different level, because then we were dealing with takeovers. And, you know, it was a different world back then. Uh, a lot of early takeover work I started doing at that point, you know, when companies were getting acquired, dealing with speculation on takeovers. But I think it was just the nature of um, that was when business journalism was really changing. And if you look back, that's the period of time that business pages, if you're looking back to the, um, that was in the, in the early 1980s, business pages were starting to come out from behind the sports pages where they were buried. Remember, business journalism was a place many people went to end their careers. It was a few people in most, if that, in most uh, newspapers. And now they were starting to come into their own advertising was starting to pour into them. They were becoming their own sections. In more local papers, there was just demand for business news. And I was part of that transition. I lived through that, watching it happen. And they became um, a go-to place for advertisers, obviously, which is what drives the news content in the sense that um, without advertising, you don't have the space because the more advertising you have space. And then it also, but but everyone left us alone. We were able to do stories. I mean, in Chicago, you know, we're, you know, really raising some questions about some of the bigger companies there. Um, and by the time I got to San Francisco, I was ready to roll. And the first thing I did when I got to San Francisco is I had seen stories about these short sellers, the Feshback brothers. They were in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. Very first thing I did when I got there was call them and said, I think we should meet. Oh, wow. And uh, I wanted to learn what they did because I looked around and I always said, I looked and everybody was doing positive stories. And I thought, well, I had this regional newspaper uh, newspaper column before the internet, before CNBC, and I had a niche. And I, if I figured if I could if I could do something proprietary with it, I could sort of, you know, make it better known, and I could really create something that didn't quite exist before. And I was able to do that, and I did that by doing takeover speculation in the very early days, but also. Um, really more aggressively starting to talk about what could go wrong with some of these companies. And if you think back to the early 90s by this point, the late 80s, early 90s, San Francisco was becoming the center for growth stocks, the center yeah. for the hype, the center for the promotion, because you had all of those – 
investment banks there, you know, Montgomery Securities, Robertson Stevens, Hamburg and Quest. And they were all the bankers to these private companies back when venture capital was the thing. Private equity didn't exist. It was probably called merchant banking back then. And so I would be the guy, suddenly people would start calling me and would want to um, talk to me about a story. You might want to take a look at this, take a look at that, because I was writing six columns a week. So it was a lot of work. And so I was always looking for nuggets. I wasn't looking for the big story. I was like to find something that was in a filing, in, a, in an SEC filing, or something you could, you could quantify. Because again, you're a journalist, so you can't just take something. You had to be able to figure it out. And, and, and for me, a lot of this was learning on the go, too. I was learning about a lot of what I was doing and um, trying to understand the accounting and understand the financials and, under, you know, and, and try to make sure I wasn't being you know, hoodwinked, which is, of yeah. course, the biggest concern you have as a journalist. What would be a red flag for you when you were doing that? Was there something that it would stand out for you in a company, uh, maybe something that was in an earnings report that you would notice? Was there any red flags that, and any favorite stories in that time that you had? Well, there, there were a lot. I mean, we, there were just a lot of different companies. I mean, in fact, I was, I was reminded recently about, a, you know, I've done so many stories, you almost forget them, right? Yeah. And if we go back even to, to, to Chicago, you know, or to, um, you know, we look at some of the stories I did uh, where, you know, well, one of the stories in San, I'm trying to think if it was in San Francisco, uh, it wasn't looking, it, to me, anything I did had to make sense to me. And you're talking to, your, to the various short sellers out there and they're giving you ideas and people are starting to call you and you have different people. And I was, you know, I had a lot of ideas I was working on. Um, you're trying to find something that was sort of out of the ordinary that people would pay attention to. And, you know, there was a story I did, I mean, on Supercuts and the CEO of Supercuts and how he was really, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a crazy story back in the day. Um, but I mean, I, I think, you know, if anyone asked me about my favorite story, my favorite story was a company in the early to mid nineties called Media Vision. It was a company that made sound cards that were used in computers. And that was a situation where short sellers suggest, say, hey, you might want to look at this and you look at it and there's something interesting. And this was a hard one for me because the CEO was a source of mine because he was willing to be a gadfly on his competitor and other people in Silicon Valley because he was a chatty guy. And it's really hard when you're a journalist and, you know, you're talking to somebody and now you've got to sort of like really come at and start asking the tough questions of that person. But that's your job as a journalist. So I sort of ignored the initial, hey, you might want to take a look at this. You may want to take a look at this. And then one day I was talking to a, one of the, the sell side stock analysts who covered the company. And he was telling me he was in the CEO's office and he was telling me something the CEO said. And I thought to myself, that's it. That, that's it. That's it. I got it. I got to take a closer look. And I started raising some questions because there were there were there were issues in the numbers where, you know, the whatever it was, and I can't think back to the time, but whatever it was, the numbers, something was out of whack, whether it was the receivables were rising faster than the sales. I, I don't know what it was, but I started raising the questions and started publishing on it. And this is a case where you get the best of all scenarios where employees start coming forward. And ex-employees start coming forward and they start saying, we got to meet and you start meeting with them. And I always met with them with great trepidation because as this thing started to move on and remember, I could write in this column, sometimes I could write about the same company once or twice or three times in the same week. And you have to remember, this is before the Internet and it's before you were judged on clicks, because if I had been judged on clicks, my guess is most people wouldn't have cared about this company. And most people, my editors would have said, no one's reading, look, no one's reading this. <laughs> so I would just keep doing my thing, just what I thought was interesting, writing these stories. Because also when you're working on a daily column like that, you have to have stuff, you're, move, you're working on multiple things at once because it's, it's sort of a balancing act. So you're working days ahead and you're, you're thinking of things you can use today and tomorrow. And back in those days, you had space to fill and you had a certain amount of space to fill. So I would, I was talking to these ex, uh, I'll never forget this one guy wanted to come meet with me. He said he had something to show me. 
And I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, is this guy going to come in with a gun? Because I'm paranoid sort. And I figured he's going to come with a gun and and shoot me. I mean, is he is he really being who knows? You know, I told yeah. my, my 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 colleagues I was going to be meeting with this guy in a big glass booth we had outside the newsroom. And he comes and he he just brings me a stack of documents. And it was like a treasure trove. And what this guy told me is he was fired. And if they were going to take him down, he was going to take them down. So he had kept all these documents. And the documents were shipping receipts. There were receipts showing what products were on, by, by, by number and code, were on a boat. When products were at a third-party jobber that was going to put all of these parts together. And what was really uh, going on. And I, first thing I ended up doing was wondering whether anything here was a setup. And a setup in the sense that I was worried that they thought they could give me documents that he was real. Again, I'm worried that he's a setup from the company, that they're going to give me documents that are somehow, you know, rigged, thinking I would just take them, publish them, and then they could sue me for libel. So we had to be very, very, very careful. But what I was able to do by talking to this guy and then talking to other former employees, piece together a story that showed they were booking revenue on products that not only had not yet been manufactured, but the parts were still on this very slow boat from really from China. And you're able to pull that together. And that kind of a story, and in the end, the CEO and the CFO uh, went to prison. And this CEO was very was known as a very aggressive person. And, you know, you go through that and you're, you're really learning about who he was and what his, his persona was and things like that. They went to prison. And I think subsequent to that, he claims it was a big setup and that he didn't do anything wrong and all that kind of stuff. But the fact is, it was it was a great story. And it was it was it will go down and every every journalist has one or two of their favorites. And that certainly <laughs> was one of mine, one of many that I did. But it was certainly one of mine. Yeah, that's uh, and it must be inspiring for you to know that you made a difference in that. That brings a question. Does the fear of ever being sued or corporate intimidation from some of these executives, I'm sure they've tried to intimidate you not to write a story. Does that ever play into you debating not writing? Does it affect your writing style? Um, and how do you deal with that? Well, first, I want to say, well, as a journalist, you're schooled in things that will you, you have rules to play by. And you don't just take somebody's word for it. You have to be able to substantiate it and quantify it in multiple ways, because any good news organization isn't going to let you publish something like that without really being um, secure in it. And um, he did try to uh, intimidate and he did call my editors and he did say, you know, he did say things like I was going to you know, rip down the, you know, the, the fabric of what made Silicon Valley so great. And I was going to affect people's jobs. And that wasn't in my mind. And in terms of being sued, being sued has never been a thought, part of my thought process. I've been threatened with lawsuits. But as a journalist, it's hard to have that in the back of your mind. I mean, I mean, you're, you're doing it's in the back of your mind, in the sense, if you're doing your job right, and if you're sued for libel, they're not going to get very far. But through all these years, I've had threats, I've had close calls, but knock on, well, knock on wood, um, I, I never have been, um, no matter, with all that stuff I wrote, never sued. Because the issue with lawsuits, first of all, suing the press is always difficult. You have a big bar to, to cross. But, you know, ultimately, there's discovery. And, you know, the issue is, does somebody really want to go there, if, especially if they know we have the goods on them? But I've been very uh, fortunate. And I was very fortunate in all those years that I did the aggressive work to um, never be sued. The closest I came was a company called Arimasoft. And they, I think they sent us a lawsuit. They were, they were suing me and they were suing a few hedge funds. And uh, no sooner did the lawsuit drop that the SEC came in and shut them down. Oh, really? And yeah, yeah, that was a pretty good one because you had a situation – that's the current the company I'm thinking of where you had a CEO, you know, in one country, a CFO in another country. You had all this, you had all sorts of things going on. And it was just um, there were some pretty smart short sellers who had figured it out. And then I came in and had to do my work and try to um, find the part of the story that I could report on that made sense to me. 
How do you think that journalism, especially financial journalism, has evolved from you know the 90s then when you're talking about to today, where you have journalists working on Substack, Twitter, a uh, number of different decentralized platforms to communicate their messaging? Uh, and sometimes these rules that you're talking about aren't necessarily being upheld because they don't have a greater organization around them to help them adhere to that. Um, and now, and like you said earlier, clicks are dictating a lot of things. We're seeing more sensational headlines. We're seeing more desperate attempts to grab traffic because it's becoming more and more difficult to get people's attention. What is your thought process on how things have evolved and how have you coped with that? That's an enormously insightful question. And it really strikes to the heart of a lot of things that have evolved over the course of the past um, 10, 15 years. When we talk about the changes, and if we start with the clicks, and we start with news organizations and the changes in news organizations. I think that's a very critical part of this whole thing. Remember, I was a stocks journalist. And in today's world, and, and, I, and a regional newspaper, in today's world, I would be a luxury guy like me doing what I did, focusing on companies, writing for a narrow niche of the market. More broadly, though, by the time I left the industry, remember, I left the Chronicle in 98 to go to the street.com. And I was at the street com for about five, six years. I went to Market Watch, and then I went to a research business. And as that was happening, as online journalism was starting to become a thing, and back then when I started in online journalism, you have to understand, when I made that transition, I was one of the first mainstream journalists to transition to an online publication. And in doing it, that was called online journalism. It wasn't even seen as the threat it would become to mainstream journalism where Deadlines suddenly, where we used to write in the morning, suddenly became you know a rolling thing. But as online became a bigger thing, and as the economics of journalism became more challenged, and advertising became more challenged, you know, newspapers, as you know, over the course of subsequent 10, 15 years, started laying people off. They started, you know, re- the whole business model was being turned upside down. And I think that affected from a financial journalism perspective, short of the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and what they do, I think that more broadly, there are just fewer people out there able to do stories. You talk to somebody, talk to a short seller today and you say, hey, you, uh, they'll say, I have a great story, but there's no one who wants to do it. Because if you're a journalist today, you're limited by, you know, you have to sell the story to your editor. Um, the editor has to think, is that, is that going to have broad appeal? I mean, it's the reality of the situation. Is there something compelling in there that you can maybe create a broader story out of? So I think from the perspective of you have to first look at the news organization, and then you see how journalists suddenly also, it's not just like you mentioned what journalists are doing. What's a journalist today? I know what a journalist is, <laughs> someone who works for a traditional news organization, but suddenly everybody's a journalist. Suddenly. You have, I remember back in the day when we were fighting um, Overstock.com and Patrick Byrne, and he called himself a citizen journalist when he started fighting back against people like me and other journalists and Wall Street and everything else. Suddenly, everybody became a star, a celebrity. Everybody saw, my sources saw it was easier for them to go direct. They didn't need a middleman. I'm a middleman, right? I'm the guy who's coming there, and they just go, I'll just go direct. So you ended up with the, you know, the, the evolution of first through blogs, yeah. um, then activist short selling became a bigger thing where the activists put it on themselves. And that's an interesting thing we should talk about later because that takes this all in a different direction. But I think suddenly you had the short sellers just, you know, everyone thought they were short seller. And suddenly you have these people who know nothing about journalism and they're writing um, reports and the reports are showing up on all sorts of platforms, whether it's Seeking Alpha or their own blogs or now Substack. And there is no one writing hurt on those people. There's no one watching to make sure they're checking their facts and checking it three times. And, you know, in my process, when I used to write, I can tell you when I was writing uh, research reports and even doing what I do today, but when I was actually a journalist, half the discovery process is, is during the writing process because this is how I work. Now, everybody's different. For me, I could do all the research in the world, but then I have to sit down and think, okay, what's the story here? Because it's always a story, right? What's the angle I have? And as I start writing the story, that's where I would start going through expanding the discovery process because that's when I start fact-checking. 
That's when I start checking everything, including the quotes that I have. And then when you're doing that, you're finding more, inevitably finding more. It's a, it's a, it's a painstaking process. But that makes it that much better. I don't believe some of these people do that. I look at some of these people who are just out there writing. They're, and by the way, I learned there are a lot of smart people out there. And there are a lot of smart people who are really good and they're good writers, they're good researchers, and they don't get themselves in trouble. And they pass on a lot of information in the marketplace about companies that ordinarily would have nobody shining the spotlight on them. But sometimes I think if they don't understand the, the, the just the basics of, you know, you got to get it right, uh, they'll get liberal and loose with the interpretation, you know, using the word fraud. You can't just use, as a journalist, you get me to use the word fraud? Yeah. That's impossible to get me to use the word fraud. But you see the word used loosely and you, you know, you better be able to support that it is a quote unquote fraud. And sometimes it's not just because the accounting is bad. Is there something else going on? Some people have done a wonderful job doing that, especially the big activists. But I think the, that was one of the big changes. And I think that evolution was occurring as journalism itself um, was starting to go through its own metamorphosis, its own change, its own retrenchment. And that was having an impact, I think, on some of the red flag waving that was going on out there. Certainly the type I used to do, um, and it still exists, don't get me wrong, it still exists, it's still there. And some journalists do fabulous jobs. You look what Dan McCrum did with Wirecard at the Financial Times, one of the, in this era's greatest, you know, outings of a company. But what he had to go through for that, through to get that done, it was lucky he worked for an organization that was in, I, I would say, because it was in the UK, it was a little more willing to take, to be a little more aggressive. And it was a little more, you know, because the, the British press is always a little saucier and was a little, um, I think they allowed him, they gave him a lot of rope and they were able to support him when the German government was coming after him, coming after the Financial Times. And I think that is a, uh, that kind of journalism you'll see all over, you'll see it, but it takes time. And, and I think the short sellers who were the sources for some of these stories or many of these stories, just there are fewer of them. And there are fewer, again, there are fewer journalists who are willing to listen and hear their stories and then fewer editors who are willing to accept the concept of that story. And again, importantly, a lot of companies that are, are either too small, you know, too illiquid, they may be great stories, but, you know, today that story is not going to get aired, certainly not in the press, which is where the activist short sellers tend to come in. Yeah. Some of these stories, like you mentioned, some of this work you guys have done could take months, if not years of research, developing the story, your sources, making sure it's all done right. And today people are doing it very quickly using uh, because the internet is just consuming content so fast without the fire hose. Yeah. How have you been able to make, cause you've stayed, you've stayed super relevant and your writing's incredible still. How have you been able to manage and stay, um, you know, at the tip of your game while all of this is happening and have you, has it forced you to maybe change your writing style at all? Well, I've changed everything. I'm constantly <laughs> changing. I like reinvent myself every five minutes. That's true. Um, That's I, can't, true. I can't, I can't sit still. Just look um, at your Twitter. Look at my look at my Twitter. Look at my LinkedIn. Just go through my LinkedIn. I get tired looking at my LinkedIn. Um, but I I come from the world where I say you only live once, and I want to try everything. And I've tried just about everything um, as it relates to journalism, non journalism, trying to work on Wall Street, you know, uh, trying to be an activist, short seller. Uh, you know, I call it my Scaramucci minute, and, <laughs> and being one. You know, he lasted eleven days. I lasted, but I, he was fired. But I lasted three months and said. This, this isn't for me. Um, I have other. I have other things. How do you define a short seller from versus what you typically do when you're investigating a company? Well, a short seller takes a position. Short seller has a vested interest, so that's the big distinguishing uh, factor there. Uh, as a as a journalist, when I was a journalist, I want to make it clear: I'm not a journalist any longer. I don't view myself as a journalist. I'm a former journalist. That's interesting. Um, I think it's well. I think it's important to distinguish that, uh, especially as we get into what what I'm doing now. But because um, I have great respect for journalism and I know, you know, I, I, my journalism skills are there. I'm a journalist. I'll always be a journalist to myself, but I would never hang out a shingle and say I'm a journalist today uh, just because it's not I'm not working for a news organization and I'm not doing the same type of reporting. So um, where were we going? Where was your I was asking you how you've how you've evolved your style. You've evolved your style many times every five minutes, it seems. Um, and you're talking about the differences between 
a short seller and what um, you know you were doing writing short reports? Well, I think so. So the short seller takes a position, and what what I was doing. Remember, I'm. I used to say sometimes I talk to short sellers, and a short seller would be adamant about something, something they they saw in a report, and they just know that this is the this is going to bring the company down. And I'd often say to them, or say to my editors, or say to anybody who would listen, which often was nobody, is that they can take a short position based on any piece of data or assumption or implication that they may have based on their research. But as a journalist, I need to be able to substantiate everything I write. And the best editors I've ever had, the very best editors will be the ones who, when I'm lazy and we all get lazy and I'm writing something and I'm going, "Eh, I don't know quite what that means, but I'm gonna let it go. Mm -hmm. It'll just, no one will notice. And that'll be the thing that the editor goes, what did you mean by that? Hmm. Got to go back and re-report that en- that entity. Journalist has to be able to support it. A short seller doesn't. They're taking a position. Again, they're, it's all a mosaic for all of us, except my mosaic has to be a mosaic that I can quantify. Theirs is they think they can quantify it, and they can have a conspiracy theory or whatever it may be. Their mosaic will point in a direction, but they don't have to have it all tied up in, in a bow. Do you think the lack of an editor separates the substacker from the real journalist as you're talking here? Well, no, there are real journalists on Substack, but yet again, um, it's a great question. And and this gets to this whole you know, this whole thing of the creator economy and what it means and who's going to survive and who's not going to survive and why I didn't go to Substack and who knows, maybe at some point I will at some point because the <laughs> Lord knows. So, um, I think it it always helps to have an editor. Uh, I think the editors have made me look better. Uh, they have saved me from myself more than you will ever know because they asked the question that I maybe missed because I was so close to it. Uh, so I think that um, I don't know because th- that that whole genre doesn't lend itself to an editor. Some people probably have editors on Substack. I suspect some people have hired editors. I, I would hope they have. But remember, in the financial world of Substack and what Substack is, there is, um, I think in that case, many of those people writing aren't journalists. They never were journalists. They're analysts. Some of the best work, you can find work on Substack that'll blow you away. And it has nothing from, it's not journalism. And again, anyone can do it. But that's, again, they're not trying to be journalists. They're influenced arguably it's called influence journalism or in, they're influencers of a various type because they can carve something out and the most successful of them are very polarizing. You know, um, when I when I tried to figure out whether I wanted to go the Substack route, I had to figure out, did I want to do it myself again? Did I want to restart? And did I want to, did I have enough edge to make a difference? Not just to make a difference to get subscribers because I anyone can get subscribers, <laughs> but to get paid subscribers and not just paid subscribers, paid subscribers who are going to make it worth my while where I can make a very good income doing it. And I felt in order to do that, even though I have edge, probably didn't have quite the persona, nor did I have the sort of issue that would, would get me there. You know, I think macro people can do it. I think stock people, it's a little harder um, because there's a very limited audience for, for negative stock research. There's, there's an audience and you can make some money doing it. But I've tried it multiple times um, to the broader market, and it's kind of hard. So I think, do they need an editor? Everyone needs an editor. Most people wouldn't tolerate an editor. (laughs) Um, And I don't know that Substack would work if that was the case. You know what you're getting when you go there. I think some, you know, one day, you know, you'll look at some of these, and one day, you know, maybe somebody will, there'll be a lawsuit if somebody gets too caustic with something, and that will scare some people. Um, I hope that doesn't happen. But again, the rules of the way I was raised and what I used to do are, are very different today. Yeah, that kind of led into my other question, which, you know, you mentioned potentially like a lawsuit on somebody who's writing something, this idea that's really prevalent right now of free speech and Twitter censoring certain people or different social media platforms censoring people. Uh, it's in the news you know, yesterday and today with Elon Musk yeah. buying 9.2% of Twitter. What are your thoughts on companies and platforms and social media platforms and places like Substack with their responsibility to censor people? And how much does that infringe on free speech when it comes to someone who 
may be considering themselves a, a journalist or writing uh, and trying to protect their First Amendment. Uh, what is your opinion there? Well, uh, well, first of all, I think Elon Musk probably owns 14.9%, not 9.2%, because he can buy up to 14.9%. And I wouldn't be surprised if he owns that already. But who knows? Um, we'll know soon enough. I think that there have to be rules. And I think any of these platforms are, are, are their enterprises, like a news organization is an enterprise. And I think they have a, re- a right. And I would go so far as to say a responsibility to weed out some of the bad stuff or what is perceived as bad stuff. They, they own this site. This is not a public site. This is not just a big public message board that no one controls that anyone could just come on and talk to. So I think you have to have certain rules. And I think I've seen enough there. And I've been, you know, obviously I've had stuff directed at me and I hate the toxicity, hate, 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 hate the toxicity of social media. And I, the beauty of it is I can adjust my stream appropriately so I don't see things I don't want to see. Somebody comes after me and trolls me, boom, you're gone. I don't have to look at you again. And that that takes, because I have so many, you know, followers and I have so many people I follow that it just takes a lot and, you know, or somebody can just link to me. I think I'm in the camp that they do have responsibility to try to weed out um, misinformation. Uh, there's there's so much. And I know the other side says, well, if there's so much inf- misinformation, the public will shout it out. But I think we've seen, based on past elections and, and just we've seen the ability for these sites to be manipulated by so quote unquote bad actors. And, you know, again, our bad actors are in other countries or another are someone else's good actors, but we've seen the way it works. And I think from a broad perspective, I do think there has to be some oversight and it's not a free for all. And I'll go so far as to say that if this thing becomes a free for all, and that's what say Elon Musk wants, and he comes in here, guys like me, I don't have, I, I find myself using social media less and less and less. I find uh, when I say social media, especially Twitter, that I'm on it. It's my first read in the morning. I go through it, see what I missed the prior hour of, you know, in my, you know, my just go through it, see if there's something that I should have seen. I love it for finding links to things I never would have seen before. But I have a day job. I, I'm busy. <laughs> Who the heck can sit there just all day long doing that? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, every now and then I'll look and I'll see, oh, boom, boom, boom. And or some days I'll get engaged and there's a topic I'm excited about and I want to weigh in on. But I find that less and less and less. And I think there'll be a point where if this becomes a terrible, toxic free-for-all, I think I think you'll see, I mean, you know, people want to be engaged. I'll continue with Twitter, but I just less and less and less. So I think that there's a fine line there. And I know that the opinions on that are extraordinarily, extraordinarily strong on both sides. But that's where I come down on it as a former journalist. And I and I'm a big free speech guy, but I don't I still don't know. Yeah, there has to be a line somewhere. It seems like there there should be a line there. And it seems like as soon as you give somebody a platform with like they don't have to put their face or name or real identity, they feel like they could do whatever they want. Of course they could. Somewhat creates this toxic trolling identity. I'm going after some people who trolled me. I always try to be nice to a troll. (laughs) And then I realize I always forget, why are you doing this? Because it doesn't work. They're just some of these people just want to fight. Mm -hmm. And if they can do it without their name, there it's that much better and they think they can say anything i once said there's some i was doing something on meme stocks and these kids were writing me or people were writing me and and i said would you talk to your father that way yeah. you know would you talk to your and you know they did you know skirt the issue because you know you feel so emboldened but there are people with their names who who are just nasty i just don't have tolerance for this constant barrage of just nasty toxic shooting i'm better than you are blah blah yeah. blah it's just it it, it it sort of reflects a society that we've been in the past say you know that's been unleashed in the past four or five six years that's just become a cesspool of information it's you know you have the fire hose of content but it's also become increasingly a cesspool and you know when you get away from it you realize you don't need it you know i go up i go back and forth to the bay area every few months and I drive on the five, I drive up, it's, it's a seven hour drive from here. And I'm on a five hour stretch of the, of the five through the central Valley, usually with podcast on or something. And it's so peaceful. It's just peaceful. You know, you stop once or twice, but there's nothing. 
And it reminds you of what it was like when you used to fly across the country before there was Wi-Fi on planes and you'd be stuck with a book or a newspaper or your own thoughts. And when you get away from it, you realize there's a world out there. And I think there's this echo chamber in social media. And a lot of people don't realize they're talking to an echo chamber. And if you get outside of that echo chamber, a lot of people just don't care. Let me, let me tell you a story, Ryan. Many, many, many years ago, mm-hmm. uh, when I was working for um, MarketWatch, I was their, one of their primary, like I was their stocks columnist. And I had a, you know, come there. I had a reputation. And this was in the midst of this whole overstock, the overstock V point, you know, 1.0, overstock 1.0. And there was a lot of tension in the short sellers were talking, everybody's talking, everybody's fighting, Wall Street, all the hedge funds were involved. <laughs> so I'd write it up. I'm, I'd write all the stuff up on, on, on uh, Marvel Watch. And then my column would disappear from the front page. So one day I said, why? What happened? Where's my column? It's supposed to be on the front page. They said, hurt. No one's reading it. And that, that was very important for me to understand. They weren't reading it because it was a narrow niche of people who cared. Hmm. I'm talking to that narrow niche of people. They make it sound so compelling. And I'm involved because they're going after the company's coming after me. So that makes it good copy. But nobody cared. In the scheme of the world, they didn't care. And a lot of the things we see on social media when we're going after things and we're punching things, just in the scheme of things, it just doesn't matter. You know, even today and yesterday, and, and I know this will be aired at different times. So when we're, when we're doing this or the days where Elon Musk is getting involved in Twitter, there was other news. Yeah. <laughs> there was other news that would have been much more important on any other day. This was the sexy news. And it was partially sexy because we're all on Twitter. Those of us who are the news media, everybody, we're on Twitter. But there was other far more important news that went on. And, um, and you lose sight of that sometimes. So that's, the, you know, look, I, I was an early user of, of Twitter back starting in 2008 and I've been a, an ambitious user. And um, I see the good and I see the potentially bad. And uh, I, so I try to use it for what it is. But when it comes to people just going after people and fighting and that, I, 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 as you can see, you hit a thing that I just, I've disliked it for years. I continue to dislike that part of it. And, um, you know, I try to avoid getting sucked in now the way, the way I did many years ago. Yeah. It's a super important thought that you just brought up and, uh, it's creates a, a culture that becomes even more and more acceptable because everyone's starting to do it and there's less repercussions around it. But uh, I heard Joe Rogan say something interesting where he doesn't even look at it. He just he might writes a comment or a post and then walks away and doesn't even open up the co- comments because he doesn't want to start looking at the trolls and the cancellations that they're trying to do to him. Yeah, you just don't. It's it, it. Look, every we're all humans, and if you're not human and you say this stuff when you see stuff about yourself, it doesn't affect you or it doesn't get in your head. Sometimes some of it does, some of it doesn't. The older I get, the less it does, but it's still toxicity. But you're all human beings and you just, you say, I don't need this. So good for him. I like what you said there about your column. Did that ever kind of make you want to change your writing style or cover different types of news, the sexy news versus important news? And like you said, it's super sad that we were putting our attention towards Elon buying Twitter, which really is not going to have a big ramification on anyone's live life. While important news seems to be taking a back seat for the moment. Um, how did that ever affect your writing style? My writing style has pretty much stayed. I've been, you know, sort of, you know, on brand for much of my career. And I mean, I think about how anything changed my writing style is only when I changed venue. And when I changed venue, the biggest changes were when I went private and did, you know, private research, because that was a whole different ball game. And that was me, in a sense, wanting to just get out of the public eye. There was mm-hmm. a point where I just wanted out. I mean, it's hard to take, take yourself out, and that's why I'm sort of back in. But it's um, – uh, and I wanted to go – I went in depth. I wanted more depth. I just didn't want to have to deal with the noise of it anymore. I did that twice in my career. And I think that uh, that's the only thing that's changed. And today, even what I do today is very different, but yet there's similarities. But I realize today – so, uh, you know – Today, I'm doing something very different. I don't know if you want to talk about it now, talk about it later, but, you know, it's just a, it's a variation on the theme because it's all, when you're, when you do opinion writing, you are who you are. And again, I've not ever, I do quasi opinion writing, 
but my style, I think, is is fairly similar to the way I've written for years. I go back and look at. You know, I think that's exactly what I meant. Is that it's so commendable that you have maintained that style of writing, maintained your you know structure into what you do, given that it's changed so much and that the way people are writing has also changed, and people are trying to look for like sexier news, and you're you know doing things that you feel are important to talk about. I've always said, like even today, when I do this, I write twice a week free and, and it's on Empire Financial Research. And also I put my stuff on LinkedIn because it's a different audience and I want my pe- people to see what I do. But it's, you know, when I do this, it's, um, you know, the key, the hard part today is with so much content, you try to rise above the noise. It's hard to rise above the noise. And one thing I've never done intentionally, I let me rephrase that. I don't necessarily try to hook what I write, and I didn't do this years ago, to the news, to my detriment. Because if I really wanted to be ultra successful in the media, I would have just every day hung on every news story and the sexiest one I would have written about. I would have written about, I thought about it. Do I write about Elon Musk today? And then I thought, let's see, this thing's going to come out at 1.30 in the afternoon. By then, everyone will be sick of hearing this story. What do I have to add of any value? So I wrote about something totally unrelated to that. And that's what I've historically done because I always figured there were other people, even though I've been dragged into it by my editors, you know, why aren't you writing about whatever the news of the day is? And I sometimes think, what do I have to add? I'd rather be writing about something that is off topic yeah. from what everybody is talking about. And I did that, did that much of my career. When I was in TV, that was to my detriment because I was so tilted against the story of the day. But you really, on TV, it's so topical. Yeah. You need to really be part of the story of the day. Um, and that was that was a little bit of a difficult transition for me. So, yeah, I try to, I, I've tried to constantly do that. And I've tried to keep my edge and, you know, my snark at times and whatever. And you try to, you try to evolve uh, somewhat. Before we get into the stuff, the amazing work that you're doing today and get more into the details on your writing that you're you know, passionate about now, I was curious, have you ever had maybe like an investor that maybe lost money because of you know, writing that you wrote negatively about a company or short reports that you wrote? Uh, have you ever had someone like maybe troll you or come up to you in person because the a company that they're part of um, or an investor in didn't do well because of something you wrote? I always joke that when I walk down the street, people pull their kids off the out of the way and they get on the other side of the street because they, <laughs> I'm, that, I'm that guy. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've had people, I, I know that there are people who don't like me. Um, the, the best story I ever tell about this, which is sums it all up, was I was walking down uh, 42nd Street in New York. I don't know if it's 15 years ago. I don't remember when it was. And I was walking with Jeff Mackey, who happens to ironically be a neighbor of mine here in, in, in San Diego now. And Jeff is a retail analyst and um, does his own thing. And he's, he's, a, he's a cool you guys. If you haven't interviewed him, you should interview him. He's, he's really all things retail. He's fantastic. And he's quite a character, too. And he's brilliant. And I'm walking down the street. And when you've been on television and you've done stuff, you know when someone's looking at you. You just There's a look. Or you know when someone's like by side and they're looking at you and they're pacing and somebody out of the corner of my eye noticed some guy in an overcoat just sort of like going along the pace we were going and we're talking you know and finally he couldn't this guy couldn't stand it anymore and he comes up he goes herb greenberg <laughs> turn around and i do what i always do somebody you know i'm out my family something i say hi i put my hand out i'm herb greenberg and he doesn't want any part of that he just goes you're the worst. <laughs> you are the worst. The worst, I tell you. And and as he's doing this, I just I just started laughing. And then we just started walking and he starts and he's muttering the worst as he's walking away to get to Penn Station or wherever he was going. And that was that sort of sums it up. You don't you know, I think a lot of people don't want to um, they just don't want to acknowledge you. You're one of those people that you, they don't respect. Um, so they just don't, um, they don't talk to you. Uh, a lot of people investing is, is up to them. I've had a few people, I've had some people say, I got out of a stock, you know, because you were negative on it and it went up and I, avoid, I didn't make the money I should have. But by the same token, you get the people who just are the opposite and say, you got me out of a stock. Thank you. Yeah, you, you know, people always want, yeah, people always want to, 
want to blame somebody. But when they're investing, it's self-directed. It's them. And if they want to listen to me and listen to my work and that's all they want to listen to, that's their prerogative. Um, I'm not telling them what to do. I'm To me, I always was a tool of information in the market. And if an institutional investor told me that they liked what I did because it made them reassess their own research and come back with stronger conviction. If that's what I accomplished, then I accomplished something that that's good. And um, if somebody else, I scared them out of the stock, you know, then maybe they shouldn't have been investing, but you always have to own up to yourself. You know, I've made investment mistakes. You have to own up to it. Yeah. That's a really good point. Maybe they shouldn't have been investing if they were that uncertain. Um, And do you think that, all of this information that's at people's fingertips, especially with the internet and Substack and Twitter, is good for the retail investor, or does it distract them? I don't. I don't know that it distracts them. The thing they have a problem with, I think, is finding the good information. So there's a lot of good free content out there, but you have to know where to look to find it, and you then have to understand what you're looking at. And some of it's not really written. Some of it's kind of hard to understand uh, just because of the way it's written. It might be too technical. So I, I just think it, you know, in the end, you have to narrow who you're going to listen to and then take other information in. And if you're looking for tips, you know, it depends. What are you listening for? What are you looking for? Are you looking for stock ideas? You can get stock ideas from so many sources. So at that point, you have to decide, you know, who those sources are going to be. If you really want to narrow it down and say, these people know what they're talking about it or this guy's good, or this guy's not good. You know, there's some people who still pay for research, and there's some people who just want to get everything for free. But again, get it for free, and you you just have to be able to analyze it yourself. Um, I'd love to hear about what you are super passionate about today, the new work that you guys are doing at Empire Research, and your own personal work, and what gets you up in the morning, what gets you excited, and when you hear the news that you want to write about, what what, what is that? And can you tell me a little bit about the new projects that you're launching? Oh man, this so so this is a significant change for me. Um, I made a change to go from just doing short bias research to being a bifurcated type of a person. I'm sort of a schizophrenic in what I'm doing. So my main job with Empire is uh, to write a newsletter once a month that is long biased, and that's very different for me. But it's 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 actually reflects kind of who I really am because. I'm a skeptic by nature. What I wrote all those years is you can only do it if you if you believe it. But in the process of doing all of this negative research, going after all the bad companies, looking at the times I've been wrong, I also came over all these years to respect businesses that do well, respect good managements, respect good strategies, respect the ability to execute on a business plan. I like that. I'm a fan of businesses. As much as I'm a guy writing about this guy is bad and this company's bad, I love the businesses that do well. I sit there and admire them. I have a retirement account. I'm invested in companies that I uh, some some of which do very well and some that have that have not done as well. Uh, <laughs> because like everybody, I'm human and I let my guard down. Same. But 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 I made the shift and I made the shift. Um, Partially, so I have the newsletter, and then over on the side, as part of Empire, I write twice a week daily, which can be anything, which can be bearish, which can be cautionary, which can be skeptical, it can be whatever I want to write about. The other day, I wrote about neckties going away. <laughs> um, and and so I can do a variety of things. But with Empire, I'm working with a team of people who historically have a short DNA. But everyone's turned around, and over the years, you know, you see bullish stories. And so... We're doing that, plus we want to do a few shorts a year, uh, which would be kind of fun, and do them for the public, for public dissemination. Um, we'll see if we ever get that done. But what I what gets me excited is when we're now writing about companies, and in this newsletter, I work closely with a guy named Gabe Marshank. Gabe does not want any of the limelight. He's very low, low ego, low, um, just leave him out of it kind of a guy, yet he's... You know, I've always worked when I've worked privately, I've always worked with with good analysts and people who are skilled that have skills I don't have. And he was at Greenlight for eight or nine years as their UK office. He was at SAC. He was at a, a few funds. He's, he's a high pedigree and a brilliant guy, just a great thinker. 
institutional knowledge that is just fantastic. And so I can collaborate with him. I can collaborate with Enrique Beda, who is um, who you've had on here, who is just uh, the best. At, at the top of the heap of just listening <laughs> to him talk about investing. And he and Gabe are, are, are very close. And, um, uh, you know, in business, they've been together business-wise for, for many years. They've been friends for many years. And working with them is really a treat. And so what we're doing is we put together a portfolio of stocks that are not high flyers. But as we put together the portfolio and it keeps rolling forward, it's we call it, you know, this is a, this is a newsletter organization. Our end market is the retail market. We call it the sleep at night portfolio in my newsletter, which is called Herb Greenberg's Investment Opportunities. And um, we are putting together the companies that we think are good long term investments have upside potential. They're real businesses. The key is they are very real businesses with real cash flow, with you know solid fundamentals. And one of the things I told them when I came to work with them, I said, I just, you know, I want something for me. I want something because I have to sit there on my own to research my own 401k and IRA, my retirement portfolio. <laughs> I do the work myself. Might as well. I might as yeah. well do it for other people. Now we can't invest in the names that we we write about, but it's the same skill set. And I said the one thing I don't want to do is I do not want to be driving up to the Bay Area. I do not want to be on vacation. And I do not want to have to worry about every name I own. Because for years, I couldn't invest in the market. And I, as a journalist, could not, I literally, I was a stocks reporter. So short of buying a mutual fund, you were, and then ETFs, you're kind of, you know, really? that was it. Yeah, you couldn't do it. And everyone, people were surprised that you couldn't do that. As a stocks journalist, some people say, well, I thought you owned all these names. No, because everybody <laughs> thought you're on the take. It's a total conflict. So, Can you give your money to somebody else to do it for you? Oh, for, yeah, of course. Like, but, you, you know, but I was a journalist. You know, you, you, did, <laughs> you, had, you had so much. So what I did when I get involved in investing is I dove in. And I wanted to, I wanted hands-on on anything and everything I could do. I wanted to learn. I, I knew I had time to start figuring out what I was just writing about and putting it to, to work to see what to well, put into good use, seeing what really worked, what didn't work, what I liked, what my own risk tolerance was, because it's one thing to write about it. So other, the other thing to put yourself and your own, you know, to, to feel it. And I felt that was very important. And I realized pretty quickly, I know what my risk tolerance is. I'm not a trader type. I don't like to sit there and hang on every, every, every moment and every tick and have to look at the portfolio and the ups and downs with come with that. I have nothing to do with that. So what gets me up now is, we're looking at companies and we look at companies that we're looking to write about and research that uh, that are interesting, but are not being talked about by most people. You know, we just wrote about a company. I can't use the name, but we just wrote about a company. This a monopoly in, in, in an industry that everybody knows near monopoly. It's big. It's boring. It has a five-year run, runway on its future, at least a five-year runway on its future business. It just gushes cash. And, but you're not going to see it talked about on television because it's just not, it's not one of those kind of names, but yet pays a dividend. Stock's been, wow. keeps going higher. It's forgotten. I have another company. Will that I, be in you know, your reports for, or will that be in your newsletter? No, that's in the newsletter. That kind of thing's in the newsletter. And that's the frustrating thing. That's a much narrower group of people, but that's the thing you have to, you know, I mean, hmm, which newsletter is that one in? That's in the the investment opportunities. That's in the paid newsletter. So that's with with Empire. My what I do free is just more me being what I used to be. You know, I wrote a thing in there recently about Warby Parker, and I was just here's Warby Parker. Warby Parker is a company that prides itself. It paints itself as an ESG company. That you know, it's 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 environmentally, socially, government. It's all this stuff. It's set up as a, you know, it set themselves up, uh, you know, as a B Corp. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah and, and which, which, which just, anyway, they have themselves set up this way. They're totally non transparent. They don't give you same store sales. They've gone out of their way to basically make it hard to figure out what they're doing. I think that is, that's a great story. I want to tell that story. I, I, I tried to get on television to tell it, but then, you know, all the stuff that's been going on went on and that's not a story that's going to be told. But I, I actually think that that's the kind of story that still gets me excited because that's something that needs to be added. Not that anyone's going to care, 
but I think it needs to, this is, is a story that needs to be told so people can at least see it for what it is. So that kind of stuff still gets me excited. Those nuggets, I call them nuggets. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> I like your spidey senses still keep going. Uh, well, they have for... <laughs> to, because it's also, you have to understand when I'm doing the long biased research, the first thing I'm wondering is what do I have wrong here? I was talking to a friend who used to be a short seller and he went to the long side of his book. And I said, how is it? He said, the hardest part of it was that his portfolio managers were chiding him for spending too much time doing the research. And that's typical, I think, because somebody who shorts a stock just has to know as much as possible. And when they're long a stock, they can take some shortcuts. And so I'm always looking, I'm still coming at it the same way. What do I have wrong? What can we have wrong? What, what, what is it in this, this story that's going to embarrass me? And I'm sure some story we write about, some company we write about is going to embarrass me. That's just the law of doing what we do. But we're trying hard to make that not happen. Yeah, I love that. And now that you're writing long bias stories, what do you think about, how do you go about writing long bias stories in a market that's so volatile today? How are you thinking about navigating these markets and these waters? And you're seeing names in technology. Uh, you know, your Enrique's talks a lot about Shopify, Facebook, uh, Netflix, and different technology companies. How do you go about looking at some of these names, uh, especially when you're writing these long bias stories? Well, we're looking at companies, first of all, that generally aren't trading at their at or near their 52-week highs. We have one, but it's such a great company that five years from now, you just know it's going to be better. Even if the stock falls, it's the best of class. So we're looking, most of our companies are companies you haven't heard of. They, they didn't enjoy huge run-ups. They've run up. Everything ran up. Um, they're trading at steep discounts to the market. They have, they're still growing. They have good margins. They're good businesses. And at some point, this market's going to recognize good businesses. And if you have a time frame of more than three minutes, you know, <laughs> three, you know, some of these that if you're if you're willing to hold for, you know, two years, three years, five years, some companies will pay you back. And that's the we're trying to find the type of companies that are in that that realm that have, say, a market value of between one and five billion dollars. Of course, they're going to be some that are bigger, some that are smaller. But they're, they're in that sort of sweet spot. But I come back to being real businesses. They've proven themselves. They're industrial companies. They're industrial services companies. They may have a consumer bent, um, but they're not, they're, they're not going to ever be meme stocks. Yeah. And they, they're well managed. You know, it's the same old, it's a holy grail of what investing used to be, is investing in good businesses. And that, I think, is something that got, um, that sort of fell by the wayside in the past two, three, four years, as everybody was making, you know, they thought it was, you, you know, it was your, you were, you were entitled to have a hundred percent gain in two weeks. It just doesn't work that way. And so we're, so this portfolio is, is much more defensive and it's much more trying to just be who I am. And, uh, and that's how we're, we're trying to maneuver it. I don't, I'm under no illusion that stocks in our portfolio, if the market falls, you know, everything takes hits, but something take, some, some things take bigger hits than others. And I think ours mm -hmm. will be a little more protected. Do you think that idea of impatience and meme stocks is here to stay? Do you think we see a resurgence of the meme stock craze? Uh, or do we, are we moving on from that? I think there will always be waves of fads and always waves of people who think they're smarter than everybody else and they figured out a way to game the market. I think there are structural issues in the markets that clearly... Um, can can make can have resurgences of of that. Um, today I wrote something about you know are, are we back in a bubble and uh, yeah, it's just that. something you know and so. Can you talk I about that? You, what do you mean? Are we back in a bubble? And what do you? Well, I was just I was using it as a way to actually uh, come back. Uh, you know, everyone thinks this bubble was sort of um, pierced, and 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 I luckily I wrote about just by dumb luck I wrote about. Uh, I, I raised a red flag about the market on um, uh, the day the NASDAQ topped in, in, in November, November 15th, I think was the day. And, and, and so I really use this as a way to talk about uh, interviewing, having interviewed a guy named Charles Kindleberger who wrote a book, a very famous book. And I interviewed him in 1996, I think, or no, 1990. Yeah, maybe 1996. I forget when I interviewed him. And it was, uh, a book on manias, bubbles, and whatever. I forget the name, the, the title of his book. And he was really one of the great mania guys. And I wanted to be able to quote 
to talk about a market like this, quoting a guy like that. So, you know, are we in a bubble? What came first, the bubble or the mania? Well, you know, you, you end up with the mania and then the bubble bursts. So, um, you know, where are we now? I don't think anybody knows. I think this market has, 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 has um, uh, fooled the best of them. True. Everybody, th- you know, the, the bond market has fooled the best of them. Everybody thinks they know. Is inflation here to stay or is it, you know, not here to stay? Is it, is it a bigger issue than people think or is it transitory as some of my colleagues think it is? Um, I'm not smart enough to know because I don't deal with, with the macro <laughs> issues. I only know when I pay $86 at the gas pump that currently inflation's an issue. <laughs> so, yeah, so you're uh, going to post something on Twitter about paying for gas feels worse when you're on empty already. Yeah, you know, so it's it's sort of, uh, you know, I think that, so I think we're in this very odd time. And, you know, any of us who've been around and lived through high interest rates, we know what that's like. And who've lived through inflation, screaming inflation, know what that's like. And, um you know, I think you have to just be on guard. And I think that should dictate if you want to be in the stock market, dictate the type of companies you now buy. That was incredible. And I think that everybody should, you know, and will learn a lot from reading your newsletter and some of the, you know, insights that you have there. Thank you so much for joining us on the, and having this conversation and educating us a little bit on, you know, your whole life and kind of what you're working on today. Thanks, Ryan. It was, it was, it was fun. Thank you so much. And I'll make sure that we all start sending people to go read your newsletter because it's actually really amazing and has helped me a lot in my investing. So thank you. Thank you.